Glad you are with us this morning. Uh, my name is Gary Weber. My privilege to serve as the pastor here at Southside Baptist Church. And uh, we welcome you to 930 worship in a different location. And if you're wondering, well, why are we uh, in the sanctuary as opposed to the Fellowship Center this morning? Uh, there is a banquet going on tonight at 6 o'clock. Many of you have already signed up to be a part of that uh, stewardship banquet, an annual event that we have where we just celebrate uh, the generosity uh, of this congregation and the impact it has in our community. So if you're signed up for that, we'll look forward to seeing you uh, tonight at that event. For the rest of you, if you're a guest with us, I want to say a special word of welcome to you. Glad you made it in and glad you found us today. We, we were just trying to keep only the smart people in church today by changing the location. So you all made the cut and you're here today. Uh, we've been in a series called Making Change for the last several weeks, and we're going to continue that series this morning. But I need I need some help today. Uh, I need a couple of volunteers, and I'm going to grab this microphone over here, if that's all right, Corey. So it says number three on it, if that helps. Um, I'm going to need some volunteers uh, today, uh, and there's a specific requirement that I need for these volunteers. It has to be people who, um, no peanut allergies, okay, so let's say that first, but then you love Reese's peanut butter cups, and I have anybody in here who loves Reese's peanut butter cups, okay, all right, we got, some, we got some takers. All right, lots of folks love them. All right, so let me have uh, Sandy come on up, John Noble come on up, come up here. <clears throat> I need you guys up here with me for a minute. Um, <clears throat> so excuse me, I'm going to be drinking some water today. Um, got a little bit of, yeah, come on up here. Now, <clears throat> I love Reese's peanut butter cups. They're my favorite. Um, and, you know, if, if we had some Reese's peanut butter cups today, um, there would be some who would say, well, it would be unfair if we didn't have enough for everybody. Um, so I'm just wondering if I could call up uh, my friend Dakota. Dakota, come on up. I happen to know that Dakota has some Reese's peanut butter cups. Come up. <clears throat> this is Dakota. Give Dakota a round of applause. Welcome him. All right, Dakota. Good to see you, buddy. Now, Dakota, when you woke up this morning... Um, did you have any Reese's peanut butter cups? No, I did not. Y- y- so you didn't own any Reese's peanut butter cups at all? Nope. Do you like Reese's peanut butter cups? Yes. Would you say that um, the Reese's peanut butter cups that you have in your hand right here, um, h- how many do you think are in there? Four. You, you sound like you know that from experience. Yes. Because there are packs that only have two. But there are four in that? Okay, so when you woke up this morning, you didn't have any Reese's peanut butter cups, but you have some now. You have four. Now, I know how you got those Reese's peanut butter cups, but our friends who are here today may not know. Um, How did you get those Reese's peanut butter cups? You gave them to me. Okay, so can we just open it and see to make sure there are four? Can we just do that? Here, let's come up here. We'll just sit right here on this table. In, yeah. <laughs> Let's just see here. I've got, we're going to see here if we can get this open here. You tie your shoe while I do this, okay? All right, let's see. We don't want to damage the Reese's peanut butter cups. All right, so you count them for me, Dakota. How many are there? Four. Okay, there are four in there, right? All right, so now here's, here's, our, here's our problem. There are four Reese's peanut butter cups in there. And you have them all. Yes. There are four of us on the stage. And my friend Sandy and my friend John 
both like Reese's peanut butter cups. And you, my new friend Dakota, you like Reese's peanut butter cups. And you have Reese's peanut butter cups. And I like Reese's peanut butter cups. They're my favorite. So Dakota, what what will you do with all four of those Reese's peanut butter cups? Now, think about that before you answer the question. Give one to each of us. What did you, what would say it again? Give one to each of us. Okay, why don't you go ahead and do that? <clears throat> Thank you. Now, now that means, Dakota, that you've got You've got, you've got how many Reese's peanut butter cups now? One. How many, when you woke up this morning, how many did you have? Zero. But you have how many now? One. One Reese's peanut butter cup. And you, you didn't have any trouble just giving us three Reese's peanut butter cups. Why did you not, why was that not hard for you? Because it's fair. Because it's fair? Okay. Well, thank you, Dakota, very much. Would you give my friend Dakota a round of applause? And Dakota, you can have mine, okay? Thank you, guys. Enjoy your Reese's Peanut Butter Cup. All right. Now, we've been in this series, and we've taken this series from a passage, 1 Timothy chapter 6. If you have a Bible, I want to ask you to open. Now, I don't know whether Dakota's memorized this passage of Scripture or not, uh, but Dakota just played it out for you beautifully. So let's read it together. 1 Timothy chapter 6. Verse 17 through 19. The words are going to be on the screen. And why don't we do this? Why don't we all just read it off the screen together today? Okay, let's read it together. Command those... passage of scripture, we have been looking from week to week at some attitude changes that we could adopt that would ultimately change the way we viewed our money, which would in turn impact the way we used our money, which we believe can have a huge impact on our culture and our society. And we're not looking at this from the perspective of what everybody in the world should do. We're just saying if just Christians, if just people who said they believed this book did what this book said when it came to money, how different our world would be. And so several weeks ago, we said the first change we needed to make was a change from believing the lie that we are poor to believing what the Bible says about us, which is that we are what? Rich. That wealth is not a destination or a dollar amount, but it is an attitude of the heart. The Bible says that Jesus, who was rich, became poor so that we who are poor might become rich. When Paul was writing this to Timothy, he started out by saying, command those who are rich. The problem is we don't think we are rich because we continue to chase after a dollar amount that we somehow define as rich. The problem is when we reach that dollar amount, what's happened? The goalpost has moved, hasn't it? 
But according to what the scripture says, we are rich. So the first attitude change is to change from poor to rich. And the second that we looked at last week, in which my friend Dakota demonstrated so beautifully this morning, is that we change from greed to to generosity. From greed to generosity. From believing that the extra that we have is for us and our personal security to understanding that we've we've been given extra so that we might be generous. Now today what I want to talk to you about is just the simple idea that there are concepts in our mind, preconceived notions and ideas when it comes to our finances that direct every dollar you spend. We all have some preconceived notion. Now, somewhere along the line, this was planted deeply inside your mind and inside your heart. It may have come uh, by the environment in which you were raised. Maybe you were raised and your family didn't have much. And so your whole view of money and wealth and resources is rooted in your childhood and your, or in your upbringing. Maybe for you, you went through a very difficult time financially at some point in your life. And that incident so scarred you, it so marked you, that every decision you make financially is based on that. My uh, great-grandmother, I was fortunate enough to be able to know her. She lived uh, for a long time. She, she didn't pass away until I was in college. She had lived through the Great Depression. Any of you have family members that lived through the Great Depression? Okay. It really marked her when it came to uh, material possessions and wealth. When we cleaned out her house, she had closets full of decaying toilet paper. And, and we think, why did you? Because she remembered when things were rationed. And so she wanted to be prepared just in case it ever happened again. That incident of her life was so formative that it affected everything she did. So all of us have a particular bias when it comes to our money. Some of you are biased uh, concerning safety and security. So your thought is, I don't know, much like my great-grandmother, I don't know what may happen tomorrow. So everything you do has to do with security and safety. Am I going to have enough for the unforeseen event or circumstance that may come? Somebody else may have the idea, the the bias, that your whole objective with your money is to provide for your family. Maybe your thought is, I don't want my kids to do without like I had to do without. And that that colors everything. I don't want them to have to, 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 I don't want them to have to suffer, maybe not be able to go to the college they want to go to. And so that one thought, drives everything uh, you think about money in the way you act with your money. Maybe for some of you, and and this unfortunately in our culture defines a lot of us, status, status and privilege define everything you believe about money. That you believe my money can buy me influence. It can buy me notoriety. And so everything you think about money goes to, will this make me look better in the eyes of my neighbors, in the eyes of the people that I work with. But what if there was a principle? What if there was just one thought that could, get, that could affect every financial decision that you would ever make and it would be completely in line with the scripture? And you didn't have to memorize all these verses. You didn't have to memorize everything Paul uh, just said to Timothy, but one simple concept. And I want to share it with you this morning because I think this concept, if we could make this our bias when it comes to money, It would radically change everything we believe about money. It would change the way we acted when it came to money, and it would have a tremendous impact on our community and our world, and it is this. I am responsible to manage what God is entrusting to me. I am responsible to manage what God is entrusting to me. Will you say that with me? I am responsible to manage what God is entrusting to me. Now here's the change it's going to require. 
It's going to require you to change from believing that you are the owner of the things that you possess to understanding what the Bible teaches about you, which is that you are, in fact, only the manager of that which you possess. It's a change from owner to manager. You see, my friend Dakota had no trouble sharing the Reese's peanut butter cups this morning because when he got up this morning, he didn't have any Reese's peanut butter cups. He didn't do anything to deserve Reese's peanut butter cups. He just happened to be the kid that was sitting in here early enough when I came in and was looking for somebody to help me with an illustration. And so when I took Dakota, the Reese's peanut butter cups, I asked him, how many did you wake up with this morning? He said, none. But isn't that true of everything you possess? If you go back and you think about everything that you possess, do you really own any of it? See, there's a myth of ownership that we live in. You think, well, I own my house. Do you? Or does your mortgage company own your house? And if by chance you've paid your house off, okay, do you really own it? I mean, are you really going to be able to keep it forever and ever and ever? Isn't somebody ultimately going to get the keys to that house? Or isn't, isn't it possible that even the government could come by with eminent domain and say, hey, we need that property for something. We need to expand a highway. You see, there's a myth of ownership. And I want us to look at a passage of scripture today where one of the wealthiest men that ever lived, the light went on when it came to this concept and this principle. And and he is one of the heroes of faith. And I think if we could look at the way he viewed money. Now, he was a rich, rich, rich man. The Bible has, has, uh, doesn't say that being rich is bad. The Bible instead says, command those who are rich to do good and to be generous. So if you have a Bible, turn back to 1 Chronicles chapter 29. I want us to look at this particular story of a man named King David. Now, many of you have heard the story of King David. King David was born, uh, he was the seventh of seven brothers. So he got all the terrible jobs. And according to Hebrew culture and tradition, um, the oldest son got everything. So if you were the seventh son, uh, you, were really, you really didn't have much hope of anything except the generosity of your oldest brother. You had to hope that maybe your oldest brother would let you work for him when he finally inherited everything from dad. So here David is. He's the youngest of seven brothers. He gets the job to go out and take care of the sheep. That's what his job is. His older brothers are, are, are fighting in the wars of Israel under King Saul. David's out working as a shepherd, and along comes a prophet named Samuel. And Samuel comes up to Jesse, uh, David's dad. Samuel's had a vision from God that God said, hey, I want you to go anoint Jesse's son because that kid is going to be the next king of Israel. So Samuel goes to Jesse, and of course the firstborn son is the first one he looks at, but God says, "Uh uh-uh, that's not him. So Jesse, uh, so Jesse brings a second son out to Samuel, and Samuel says, nope, it's not in him either. So he gets all the way through the six sons, and Jesse, I guess, just forgot that he had a seventh son, because, because he's like, well, that's it. And Samuel's like, there's nobody else? And Oh, yeah, there is one more kid. He's out taking care of the sheep. He was just a shepherd. So Samuel goes out and anoints David to be king of Israel, just this lowly shepherd, and, and the story goes on, and you can read about it through, uh, through the book of, of, uh, of 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings. You can read all about David's struggle. Because um, Saul, who is the king, doesn't want to give up being king. And he doesn't like David. 
But God is with David, and God blesses David. And eventually, David becomes king, and he's fought a lot of battles. He's gone through a lot of hardships. He's worked hard. He's, he's done the right thing, even when doing the right thing cost him dearly. And he is eventually made king. And after he's fought all these battles, and his kingdom is firmly established... God has blessed him with a tremendous amount of wealth. He decides that he is going to do something for God. He wants to build something. He wants to build a temple for God. Up to that point, the Israelites had worshipped basically in a tent. And David says, this isn't right. I want to build a temple where God can be worshipped. And I want you to listen to this prayer that David prays. Because it gives us a real clear insight into how David thought about the wealth that he had been given. First Chronicles chapter 29, verse 10. Blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. So here David is. He's looking back over all the successes, all that he's possessed, and he recognizes it's all God's. All this belongs to him. I was just a shepherd boy. I started out with nothing. All of this belongs to him. Do you know that in 2005, the combined income of committed Christians. Now, when I say committed Christians, what I basically mean is just anybody who attends church more than twice a month. Okay, Because that's the only way people who do polls can really measure these things. So, so just the Christians in America who go to church at least two times a month, that the combined income of those Christians was over $2 trillion. If you put all those people together, just the committed Christians with their $2 trillion would represent the seventh wealthiest nation on the planet. God has blessed Christians today in America. I'm not talking about Christians in any other part of the world or in any other century, just in this century. Christians in America are not only the richest Christians on the planet, but they are the richest Christians who have ever lived throughout the history of the church. If you took the combined wealth of every Christian who has ever lived up to this present age and put it together, it still wouldn't match what Christians in America possess today. God has blessed us, and we had better figure out why. See, David looked around and he said, I see all this wealth that I've been given. We're a lot like David. When do we get to that moment that we look around and say, God, why have you done this? Why have you so richly blessed me? The king of the world's greatest superpower bowed down to one that he recognized was greater, one that he recognized was, in fact, the owner of it all. Look at verse 11, the second half. For all that is in heaven and in the earth is yours. In Colossians chapter 1, it, it says that, uh, that, that the Son is the creator of all things, that he is before all things, he is in all things, and in him all things hold together. Everything belongs to him. David said it thousands of years before Paul did. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Everything on earth. See, David recognized it's not even just what I possess. I mean, you've blessed me and I'm very wealthy, but everything on earth is yours. 
Whether I own it or not, it all belongs to you. There's nothing that the sun falls upon that you didn't create. There's nothing that you don't already own. And he's saying, all we're doing is just shuffling the deck. All we do is just move wealth from one place to another. We, we move it from one person to another. But ultimately, you are the one who own it all. Verse 12, both riches and honor come from you. And you rule over all. In your hand are power and might. And in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. See, David recognizes God not only owned it all, but he was the source of it all. That there was nothing before God spoke into creation and said, let there be light. And there was light. There was nothing at all. God spoke it all into being. And not only is he the source and the creator of everything that is material, but he's also the source of everything that money can't buy. Everything that we enjoy. Everything that enables our accomplishments. The knowledge belongs to God. The wealth belongs to God. The happiness belongs belongs to God. The tragedy, the sorrow, everything comes from him. And anything we might do to contribute to our success, to our wealth, would be impossible if it weren't for God's gift and provision. And it's like the light bulbs going off for David. He's like, I I know I've worked really hard over these 40 years to establish this kingdom, but I'm beginning to realize that God, it's, it's just yours. It's always been yours. And then listen to what he says in verse 13. And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. But who am I, and what is my people? Have you ever had that moment? Who am I? God, why have you blessed me? See, in our culture and in our world today, we may not often think that way because everything about our culture keeps telling us we should say, poor me. We should look at what we don't have. We should look at what we lack. Instead of looking at it the way David looked at it, the way the Bible tells us to look at it and recognize, what has God withheld from you? Thank you, God. Thank you. And we praise your glorious name. But who am I? And who is my people that we should be able to thus thus to offer willingly? For all things come from you, and of your own we have given you. See, David realized, like, what am I going to give him? It all belongs to him anyway. What am I going to give him? So I'm going to build this palace, and it's going to be one of the seven wonders of the world. And David didn't know it at the time. He wasn't going to be able to complete the palace or uh, complete the temple. His son Solomon, and it would be one of the seven wonders. But he's saying, it already belongs to him. Everything that I'm going to collect All the materials I'm going to use to build it, it already belongs to him. So what am I giving to him that he doesn't already possess and already own? It reminds me of when my kids were younger and it would get close to time for uh, Christmas or for um, either our birthdays or Christmas. And so they would come to me or they'd come to Sherry and they would want to borrow money to buy us a Christmas present. You remember doing that? Anybody got, got that experience? What were they doing? What were they going to give to us that we couldn't have just bought ourselves? Nothing. But that wasn't the point, was it? 
And David says, there's nothing I could give you that you don't already own. See, here, here is the radical thought. And this comes from the Old Testament and it's true in the New Testament. That I am responsible to manage what God is entrusting to me. But I own none of it. None of it is mine. None of it came to me because I deserved it. It all belongs to God and he's asking me just to manage it. See, how would that change your finances? How would that change the way you dealt with the money in your bank account this week if you really believed you were just managing the money? See, some would say, well, that, that would be, I could become irresponsible. I, I don't think so. I think ultimately we'd recognize we're more responsible for it because it doesn't belong to us. Let me, let me ask you something about finances because so many times for a lot of us, when, when we start talking about money, we get defensive. We get very uncomfortable because it's such a private and a personal issue. But when you've been in a, financial dif- in a financially tough spot, when you didn't know what you were going to do, when you didn't know where the resources were going to come from, my guess is at some point in your life, you prayed to God and asked him for help, didn't you? We've all been there, haven't we? Like, God, I don't know how I'm going to do this. Just help me. You may not even believe in God, but suddenly you find religion. Because you need some help. And you'll cry out to him in the middle of a crisis. God, would you help me in this financial situation? Would you just send Publishers Clearinghouse, Lord, please, today? Because the desperation of your situation will cause you to cry out for God. But what if you did this? What, what if you didn't wait for a financial crisis to look into the will of God for the way he's inviting you to handle his resources here and now? See, the Bible gives a very simple and a clear plan. Let me share it with you. How the Bible commands us to manage God's resources. The first word is priority. Priority. Make your generosity to God your first priority. I give to God first. Many times what we do instead is we say, well, I'll do everything else that I'm supposed to do that I even want to do. And then if there's anything left over, then I'll return to God what really was already God's to begin with. The Bible clearly teaches to set God as the priority, understanding that it is all his. Everything belongs to him. Make him priority number one. One And some of you think, I couldn't do that. Because I'd get to the end and then I wouldn't have any money to pay my whatever. I wouldn't pay my utility bills. How do you know that until you try it? What if you made God, what if you made his will for your money your first priority just this week? What would happen at the end of the week? The second thing that the Bible clearly says is that we are to give God, return to God a percentage of what he's given to me. That I base my giving on a percentage of my income. A percentage of my income. We said last week, I challenged you last week to figure out how much of your income you live off of. And some of you, um, some folks didn't come back this week because they didn't like the number. How much is enough? How much more wealth do we have to amass until we finally say, okay, we've got enough to do what the Bible says to be generous with the rest of the world. Base it on a percentage. The Bible clearly says that 10% is, is, is what God asks us to give back. The first 10% of what we make, and you think, well, I, that's insurmountable. What if you started with 1%? 1% 
What if you, what if you just began with 2%? God would honor that, a percentage of your income. You think, well, that's painful. That's, that's difficult. A colonoscopy is painful too, but it saves lives, doesn't it? I'm not saying it'll feel good. I'm not saying it'll be easy. I'm just saying if you will cry out to God in the middle of a financial crisis and ask him to help you, why wouldn't you try to do what he's commanding you to do before you get in the crisis? Priority, percentage, and finally progressive. I am growing in my generosity. See, part of what we have to ask the question is, why is God why is God continuing to increase my wealth? Is it so that I can increase my lifestyle or so that I can increase my generosity? What if the reason Christians in America are the wealthiest, wealthiest Christians have ever been is because God expects them to be more generous than he's ever asked Christians to be before? Priority, percentage, progressive. Here's the alternative to that. And here's the way most of us do this. The alternative is to be spontaneous. So when there's a crisis, a national crisis, a hurricane, and we see the Red Cross commercials, we really think we've done something because we text and we give $10 to the Red Cross. But we don't have a plan for being generous. We just do it when there's a crisis, when we feel guilty instead of making it a priority. So we do it spontaneously or we do it sporadically. We do it when we think we have a little extra in the checking account or we do it sparingly. We think, what do I have left over that I can give? And then here's what happens. We're deceived into believing that we're generous when we're not generous at all. Because generosity comes from making it a priority, from giving a percentage and from doing it progressively. See, but we have to understand, it was never ours to begin with. It was, it was a packet of Reese's peanut butter cups that somebody handed us when we walked into the room. We didn't do anything to earn it or deserve it. We were just asked to manage it and take care of it for a little while. This is why Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 5, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. While they owned nothing, they inherited it all. Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, I own nothing, yet I possess everything. Just before Paul wrote these words that we've been reading the last few weeks to Timothy, in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 9 through 10, listen to what Paul said to Timothy. But those who desire to be rich, notice, notice what it implies. They desire to be rich, meaning they don't believe they already are. Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through the craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Because they failed to recognize the simple truth that God, who is the owner of all of it, has entrusted it to you. He's invited you to manage it. One of my favorite writers, A.W. Tozer, says in The Pursuit of God, but sin introduced a complication that made the very gifts of God a potential source for ruin for our souls. It goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden, doesn't it? 
When Adam and Eve wanted the only thing God told them that they couldn't have. He said, everything in the garden is yours. You can use it however you want. And the one thing that was off limit is the one thing that they went for. And our hearts do the same thing. Tozer says, our woes began when God was forced out of his central shrine and things were allowed to enter. Within the human heart, things have taken over. There is within the human heart a tough, fibrous root of fallen life whose nature is to possess, always to possess. It covets things with a deep, fierce passion. The pronouns my and mine look innocent enough in print, but they are verbal symptoms of a deep disease. The roots of our hearts have grown down into things, and we dare not pull up one root unless we die. Things have now become necessary to us, a development never originally intended. God's gifts now take the place of God, and the whole course of nature is upset by the monstrous substitution. God says, I've given you everything. I've given you myself. And listen, God doesn't want your money, but he wants to keep your money from having you. How would you spend your money differently this week? How would you manage the resources that you previously believed you owned if you stopped believing that they were yours and instead believed that you were just managing it on God's behalf? I want to challenge you this week to do just that. I want you to pray over the things that you think you own and maybe even in a private act of worship, offer them all back to God. God, this house, it's your house. God, this car, it's your car. God, my education, maybe that I'm still paying for, is it your education? God, my kids are your kids. My clothes are your clothes. The food in my pantry is your food. God, how would you have me use? How would you have me use your resources this week? Because it all belongs to you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a loving and a generous God. That everything in heaven and on earth belongs to you. There's nothing made that you didn't make. And Father, we're just pilgrims passing through and you have entrusted things to us, material possessions to us for just a little bit of time. Father, may we be like King David. May we have that moment where the light bulb finally goes off and we recognize we don't own any of it. And Father, in that realization, may our hearts be set free to manage that which you've entrusted to us the way you want it to be managed. Father, to hold with open hands everything that you place in our hands. So that anything that's in our hands, you can freely take. But Father, our hands remain open that you can fill them with anything that you choose to fill them with. Lord, help us. Help help the church in America today to wake up. To stop believing the lies that say that we're poor. To stop believing that the extra we've been given is for our own good. And to understand, Lord, that there is a reason you've blessed us beyond What's, what has ever been received from any of your people in all of history before. 
Father, may we believe that at at Southside Baptist Church, and may it change the way we think about our money and the way we think about the money that you've entrusted to us as a church, that that we might be extravagantly generous so that your glory may be made known. Father, for those who are here today, who find themselves in bondage, maybe to debt, maybe to greed. And Father, they're having trouble hearing anything I'm saying because their financial situation is so desperate that, Lord, they can't even, they can't even see how any of this would apply to them. Lord, I pray, just as we sang for freedom and celebrated freedom earlier, that today they'd find freedom in just the knowledge that it all belongs to you. Thank you for the riches that you've given us in your son, Jesus Christ. That when we were poor, he made us rich. Father, in this act of worship as we give, Father, may, we, may it be more than just the money we place in these plates, in this jar. Father, may it be a symbol of our commitment to give it all to you. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.